Somebody, if you're with me this morning, somebody say, Amen. Amen. We have been in a two-part series, and last week we talked about the great divide, about the judgment of unbelievers. Specifically, we called it the reality of hell. And I encourage you to go listen to that if you haven't. But today we're going to talk about receiving your reward. The judgment of believers. Receiving your reward. The great divide. Uh, In New York in the 1800s, there was a young man named Charles Finney. And Finney was this young lawyer lawyer in training. And he, one uh, early morning in New York, he was at his squire, his master, his boss's uh, uh, shop, his office, where they would do and practice law. And early one morning, God began to deal with him. Now, uh, Charles Finney was not a, a religious man. He, did not, he was not saved at the time. He knew of Christ. He knew of God. He knew of church. But the church, predominantly in America at that time, was completely dead of all life, and it was all religion. And there was much immorality in many towns, much drunkenness, much depravity. And this young man, studying law, began to get there that early that morning, and the Lord began to deal with him. And the Lord simply said somewhere along these lines, he said, uh, Finney, what are you going to do when you finish this course, what he's studying for? And the Lord asked, and so Finney replied, probably in his mind, he said, you know, open an office and practice law. And then what, said the Lord? Well, get rich, he thought in his head. And then what, retire. And then what, die. And the Lord said one more question, and then what? And the terrifying words came into his mind which is this, the judgment. So he could build his office, he could get rich, and he could practice law, he could retire, and, but when he died and those thoughts came in his mind, and God said, and then what? The thoughts came immediately in, the judgment. And with that fearful thought in his mind, he left his office, ran uh, about a half mile away into the woods, and began to pray all day long for salvation. With weeping and anguish, he began to confess his sins before God, and he did not leave those woods until he felt the refreshing presence of God. That was the beginning day that years later, 50 years would go by, Charles Finney would be known as one of the greatest American and worldwide evangelists the world had ever seen and be a large part of spurring uh, the great American revivals called the Great Awakenings. Uh, You should look him up. But my question for us today is, do we understand the fear and the love of God? And what does the idea and the truth of judgment do for us as unbelievers and believers? Are we equally motivated uh, by the love and the fear of God? And in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus said that there's going to come a day when his angels and he are going to come and return to the nations. And he's going to take all people, all nations, he's going to divide them as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And to the ones on his right, he will say, come on in and enter and receive your reward. But to those on his left, those that are not in favor, see the right side is the favored side. To those that have received his favor and are in favor with him, he says, come on in. And to those on his left who are not in favor, he will say, depart. And he'll either say one or two, one of those two words to you on that day, come or depart. And which will it be? Where will you stand? And I can't tell you for yourself. You and God alone will have to know those, that truth. But will we come in or will we depart? Because everyone, Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that everyone after death will face the judgment of God. Both saint and sinner, 
will give an account in eternity for what you have done with your life, how you have spent your life, how you have ran your life in accordance with God's Word. And on that day, the Apostle John talks about that great white throne judgment in Revelation. He says he saw the dead, great and small, standing there before this great white throne. The sea and heavens and everything had passed away, and there was no room for anything uh, there but just those individuals in God, all the dead. And there was books that were opened up, many books, called the Books of Remembrance, and another book called the Book of Life. And those were judged by according to the books, the books of remembrance of all the deeds they had done. And those that had not their name in the book of life were cast into everlasting punishment. We will all be judged and we will all face him uh, one on one, face to face. And Paul even said it to believers. And here's our text for today. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul says it to even his believers in Corinth. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed, repaid, or rewarded for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In verse 11, he says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Here's this Apostle Paul who knew the exceedingly uh, love of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. He knew about the love of God uh, more than most. Him and John the Apostle talked extensively about the love of God. But Paul says it was knowing the fear of the Lord which caused him to persuade men to turn to Jesus Christ. It's both fear and both love. And he says, we all, even Christians, even believers, are going to appear before a seat of judgment, and you are going to be uh, recompensed, rewarded, or judged according to what you have done, whether good or bad. What is Jesus judging you on, and what hope do you have? That's what we're going to talk about today. What are you going to be judged about? What is Jesus going to judge you? What is going to be in those books when you and you alone stand before him? Because I will not be there to plead your case. I will not say, hey, they were a good member at sanctuary. I, nobody, your wife, your husband, your spouse, your grandma who prayed for you, none of them will be there. It will be you and God alone to answer for everything before him. So let's talk about this. What is this judgment of believers that Paul is talking about? Um, if you... Think about Scripture. Israel was no, no uh, stranger to God's judgment, even uh, the God's people. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4 that judgment first comes to the house of God, that God judges His people first. Uh, and Paul repeatedly said in Romans uh, chapter 14, verse 10, he says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, that each one of us, again, he echoes what he said in 2 Corinthians, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So what is the judgment of believers and how will we be judged? This, uh, this idea, when we talk about the context of Paul's writings in Romans 14 and 2 Corinthians 5, uh, there's a word called bema, B-E-M-A. And this is called the bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ or the judgment seat of God. And when Paul is talking to you and I as believers today, uh, he, he puts us in the same category, yes, that you and I will all stand and give an account before God of how you live this life. But what he uses the context for is in the Greek Olympic Games, okay? And so uh, you think about the games, much hasn't changed that we, we do them today and that, you know, they come around every few years. In the Olympic Games, an athlete would train their whole life for that competition. 
they would work and they would work and they would toil and there would be judges. Most of you, you've been to a, uh, any kind of a sporting competition. We've got umpires, you have judges. Well, in the Olympic Games, there would also be judges and they would be sitting on high on the bima, the judgment seat. And when the, Olympic, the Olympians ran their races or did their javelin throws or did their uh, different events, they would all be presented before the bima, the judgment seat. And their reward, their judgment would be given to them. They would either win the gold or the, the bronze or they, would, uh, they got this uh, reef, uh, a crown. You know, we'd see about those little Caesars. You know, think about what I'm talking about here. You know, like the, uh, the, the lettuce on your head, okay? Um, that crown, that victor's crown, okay? And that would be what he's talking about. And so it's a judgment seat, but for the believer, it's not in a legal sense. It is to determine what you have accounted your life for. What, what reward, if a reward at all, will be given to you. And so when Paul writes Romans chapter 14 and 12, he says, We will all stand before the judgment seat of God, and each one will give an account of himself to God. What he's saying there for you and I today, he's saying, Watch how you're running. What is your performance like? You are in this Christian race. You are in a marathon for your life. You have been given something. You've entered into this journey with Jesus Christ. It's His race. He's the judge. He makes all the rules. I'll say that again. He's the judge. He makes all the rules. He says how this race should be won. He says, this is the lapse it's going to take for you to win. This is the competition. This is how I'm judging what the merit of a Christian life looks like. You can go anywhere around the world today, and they, a different array of pastors, they're going to say, well, if you're just a good person, or if you just tithe, or if you just speak in tongues a few times, or if you just baptize, or if you're just a good moral person, or if you just contribute to my retirement fund, whatever they say, there's only going to be one judge on that day that determines how you've run your life. There's only one judge, and his name is Jesus. And he's watching to assess your performance and my performance and determine our reward. And it says that he, our reward will be based on our physical deeds. That means the actions of your life. They'll either be good works you've done in the name of Christ that result in great reward or greater reward, or they'll be the bad deeds, the lack of deeds that will lessen our reward. So here's the good news. All these authors are very clear for us to say and to know and back up with the truth of what Jesus Christ said, that there is no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. If you're worried this morning, I'm going to ease you with the good news. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What does that mean to in Christ? That means you love Him more than you love your sin, and you love Him more than you love this world. I'm going to say that part again because that's very important. If you're in Christ, it means you love Jesus more than you love your sin, and you love Him more than you love this world, that you have confessed your life to Him, that He is not just your best friend, but He's your Lord and your Savior, right? We like, the, we like to pick. I want Jesus my buddy, but He's also my Lord, my master, my ruler, my judge, right? We can't, we can't have just one or the other. He's all three. My Savior, we love to be saved from hell. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. But He's also my Lord and my judge. And so we think about this, that if you are in this race, the good news is that if you've joined the team, Team Jesus, if you love Him more than your sin, more than this world, you will not be condemned in any way. His death removes all the punishment and the guilt of our sin. And he says, it's, Psalms 103 says, it says, the east is from the west, so far he's removed our transgressions from us. 
But in this life, while I am living in victory over sin, no fear of death, no fear of guilt or shame or condemnation, I still am in a marathon. I'm still running towards that finish line, like Paul says, to be held and behold what he has behold for me. That I press forward, I push everything aside, I press forward for that upward call. That there is something to be running for and to. And so many Christians today are just sitting. They're just sitting. But we will all give them a full account for how we've run this new spirit-filled life. It is a blessing to be given new life. And I want you to think this morning in Revelation, the Apostle John sees this judge... Because sometimes we think of Jesus as this guy with a little lamb or, you know, the, the glow, the blue eyes and the, you know, blonde hair, you know, all that kind of stuff you see on TV or the rainbow Jesus or, you know, the suffering servant Jesus and all that. The suffering servant's true. But when John sees him on this day, he sees him hair white as wool, eyes blazing of fire, feet glowing bronze, his a robe of white just dazzling and glowing, and his mouth was piercing with his words. That's the Jesus that is there on the throne today. That's who He truly is. And can you imagine, there is going to come a day when Heath Harris, when you come up before that throne, and I know there's no condemnation, and I know I'm saved from my sins because of what He's done, not because of what I've done, because of what He's done. And by faith, I've loved Him, and I've hated the sin that, that I was entangled with, and I've loved Him more than the world, and I've overcome. But then I'm going to come up to that bema, that seat, and I, how I've run my life, how I've preached how I've prayed, how I've led my family, how I've led you, the church. And the Bible says that teachers and pastors will have a greater judgment because of what we're responsible for. And it is a humbling and sobering thought that I'm going to meet the man whose eyes are as blazing fire. And I will stand before him and give an account for how I pastored you. How you have lived your life, how you have raised your kids, how you have talked to your neighbors, how you have given to the missions that you knew about. How you have loved those that persecuted you and prayed for those who hated you. You'll give an account for all of these things. And let's talk about that measuring stick. Because when you go to any good sport, and you know we have the the baseball and the softball and the football, there are rules and standards for how players play. There's ways that you do that touchdown and there's, uh, you know, the innings are measured in certain time frames. And all these things uh, are all measured in a certain way. They all have their own rules. And Jesus has this measure. And the Bible says that we will be uh, measured according to these good deeds. So I'm going to talk about that for a moment. What is Jesus looking for in you and I? Because it's very important. If I'm going to play baseball and never played baseball before, I really want to know which base I go to first. Might be important, right? If you never played the game before, if you don't know what you're doing, you kind of need to know. Can I run pass first? Okay, can I do that on second too? You know, like there's all these rules that are very specific that you, if you've never done it before, you should know. So Jesus has some measures. And let me give you some that I see in Scripture when we talk about what Jesus is calling rewards in the gospel. And if I'm going to concise it, and Jesus says it this way, and just concise these things where he talks about rewards in his words in red, he says that Scripture declares that God gives rewards to those who are humble. Okay? He says to those who are upright in heart. God gives rewards to those who delight in the Lord. That means you just love being with Him, spend time with Him. Uh, He gives rewards to those who worship Christ over the things of this world, to those who pray in secret. God rewards them. To those who love even their enemies, He rewards. Those who endure persecution, Jesus said, 
those who hold their faith through testing, those who give sacrificially, and especially those who give in secret without the praise of men. Jesus gives rewards to those who help the needy and the stranger. This is the things he's looking for now. All right, we're about to run this lap. He gives rewards to those who uh, receive traveling ministers with the gospel and, and take them in hospi- with hospitality. That would be like coming in and blessing our missionary guests and our evangelists and sending them out to the next place. We, we support those missionaries overseas and those who come in and are guest speakers of the gospel. And he says he rewards those who voluntarily expand his kingdom. Those who work as laborers in the harvest, these are the ones that he rewards. This is what he's looking for. So let's go back just for a second. Humble, upright in heart, delight in spending time with God, love their enemies and endure persecution, faith through testing, give sacrificially in secret, give to the mission, give to his kingdom. Ultimately, what that means is he's rewarding faithfulness. Faithful service and the measure is his life that he showed you and I on earth. The life of Jesus Christ is the measure we're measured by. And so, what is this faithful service? He says, ultimately, we're going to be rewarded in proportion to our faithfulness. And Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Because sometimes this can be, well, Pastor, I can't preach. God, I, I, you know, I can't sing. I don't have these gifts. And Paul says it this way. He says, the church is God's field. It's this big field, and, he, and it's supposed to be a field of harvest. That's what his design is. And he says, whether you are planting or whether you are watering, Each one will receive his own unique reward according to his own labor. God has given you specific gifts, specific duties, specific callings. Unfortunately or fortunately, however I want to view it, for me, he's called me into full-time ministry. I love it, but it was also a challenge for me to enter. I had no desire as Heath Harris to become a pastor. That's God's gift, and I thank God for the opportunity to do what he's called me to do. And I'll be judged according to what my gift is. And you'll be judged according to what your gift is. If you're called to be a Sunday school teacher, be the best Sunday school teacher you can be. If you're called to be a worship leader or a worship uh, singer or musician, be the best you can be for the glory of God. He's judging you according to what he's talented or gifted you and your talents, your traits, your time, and what he's put in your heart, in your life. And he says, if you have a calling on your life, you're judged by that calling. And whatever that is, that's what he's going to call you to account for. How you've run, how you've done. And so Paul says, whatever you plant, if you plant, you might not be the pastor, you may not be the evangelist, but you'll be judged in what you can do. Whether you water, maybe you're a disciple maker, maybe you're there to spur on the youth pastor, spur on the kids team, but you'll be judged according to what he's gifted you to do. And I hope for you and I today, there is not some things that we know we should be doing, but we're not. Because you're going to be judged for it. We're going to give an account for the things that we know, not just that we do and don't do, but the things that we know we should have done but didn't. And so that's a fearful thing. God, may I not miss out some opportunities that you've put in my pathway. Some things that, God, I was so busy with the cares of this life that I didn't hear your voice to do those things you called me to do. And the Apostle Paul, while this can seem kind of scary, the Apostle Paul, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you read the context, he says that, Uh, I'm living a life that I might please the Lord. And he says that I know I've got this earthly tent and this earthly body, but my desire is to be there with the Lord and to have that eternal dwelling place. And there was this this great excitement. He's like, even though I fearfully, knowing the fear of the Lord, I persuade men, there was still some longing to see Jesus face to face. He wasn't scared of him in the sense of fear of loss, but Paul was so confident. He said, 
For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul was so confident, so uh, full of the Spirit in what he was doing for Christ that he did not look at Judgment Day as a loss. He saw it as a great reward because he knew with confidence, sometimes we think of it arrogance, but with great Christian confidence, Paul said, I have forsaken all things, counted all things as rubbish, that I might gain Christ. I want to be able to say the same thing. I want to go with, without fear, without fear of loss, to go to that judgment seat, that Bema seat, and say, God, I trained my whole life for that Olympic race. God, I put all that I had into it, all my time, all my energy, went into running like you wanted me to run. And I am here, and God, whatever I have done, here I am. Because sometimes you can do everything you can do, and you're just at the mercy of that judge to determine bronze, silver, gold. Some of us are like, just pass. Let me just pass, you know, school. I just want to pass, right? But what attitude are we going to approach that bench with? What attitude will it be? Oh, man. Whoo, I know now. This was real. How will we approach that beam of seed? Because Jesus even said it this way. There's going to be some unprofitable servants. In Matthew chapter 25, you can turn there with me. Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses 24 through 30, Jesus gives this parable. It's called the parable of talents. And he says, they're going to be some like this. He said, there was a man. He had three servants, three slaves. And he went away to uh, inherit his kingdom. He went, he went off uh, on a journey. And he put these three in charge of his great estate. These three servants in charge of his great estate. And to one, the first servant, he gave five talents. That was about 75 years worth of wages. That's a lot of money. 75 years worth of your wages. Uh, he gave five talents. To another, he gave two talents. That's about 30 years of wages. Each, wages. each talent's about 15 years worth of your salary. And to the last one, he gave one. So the 15 years. So one had 75 years worth of money. Two had, uh, the second one had 30 years. And the last one had 15 years. So five talents, two talents, and one talent. And as this master was gone, they didn't know he'd come back. So these... First guy with the five talents, he begins to invest his master's money and his estate wisely. No doubt had to pay the bills, feed the pigs, clean the house. So he had to use that master's money. But not only did he use it, he increased it. He doubled it. So he got 10 talents now. Same thing with the guy with the number two talents, just 15 years or 30 years worth of money. Uh, He began to invest wisely his master's money and increase his master's estate. So one day, unfortunately though, that guy with the one talent, just the 15 years, he decided that he would just bury that money, put it to his side, because he didn't want to have to use it and lose it. He didn't know if he could increase it or not. So he decided, you know what? I don't know how long this master's going to be gone. Um, no doubt he went and did his own thing. Let's put it to his side. Master may or may not show back up today, tomorrow, a couple years from now. It was a long time. So he went on with his own life. He didn't care about his master's estate. He didn't build it. He didn't increase it. He had no love for it. Uh, and so his master comes back and wants... He says to the first slave, man, you did such a great job. Well, well done. I'm going to give you more responsibility, more reward. I'll, I'll increase your holding in my estate. Continue to do the work you've done. To the guy, second guy, same thing. You had two talents. Now you had four. You've increased my estate, my holdings. Now, great. Good job. Let me give you some more responsibility, more reward. The guy shows up with just the one talent still there. He says, master, I didn't lose what you gave me. I still got it. What does Jesus say to him? He says, to you wicked, worthless, lazy slave, you're good for nothing. 
you could have at least put it in the bank. I could have got some interest on it. If you weren't involved, if you weren't interested in increasing my kingdom or even managing my estate, you didn't even use the money that I gave you to continue my state withholding. Uh, you didn't even put it in the bank. You were lazy. You don't care. And he said, but I thought you were fearful. He's like, you knew who I was. And then he says, Jesus goes on to say, it'll be Christians like these. That Jesus says they are wicked, they are lazy, and they are a worthless slave. And they'll be thrown into the outer darkness and into hell. Let me be very clear today. If you are not interested in growing Christ's kingdom, you will not make heaven. I love you. I care for you. I want you to be with us in eternity. But if you have no interest, if your life is spent on your own merit on your own interests, on your own pleasures, more so than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You have no part in this race. You prove with your own heart that you don't love what God has so graciously given to you. That He says, I am trusting you with my church. I'm gone away for a little while. You don't know when I'm coming back. And I've given you new life. I've given you the power of the Holy Spirit, all the gifts of heaven. I've given unto you a truth of my name is on you. You're called by my name. You're my child. I've adopted you. Giving you this great reward. And you've kept it to yourself and spent all of your time on your own pleasures. So when he comes back on that day, it will not be a good day for them. There will be some that meet that beam of seat thinking, They will make it into heaven and they'll be utterly shocked because they did not run that race the way the judge demanded it be run. He goes on even in Matthew chapter 25. He says, these are like those that are going to approach that judgment seat and they think they've done great things in Christ's name. They've cast out demons. They've spoken tongues. They've all kind of done stuff. Great Pentecostal person you've been. But Christ says what? You've not fed the hungry. You've not given drink to the thirsty. You've not clothed the naked. You have not cared for the sick. You didn't visit the prisoners. And because you didn't do it to these, you didn't do it to me. And even though you had only my name, you had my name, but you did not have my heart. You didn't love like I love. You didn't care about the kingdom I did. It was all for you. It was to build you up. You spoke in tongues for yourself. You preached the gospel for your own self. You, you said you were a Christian to make you fit in with the society. You attended church because it was the right thing to do, not because you loved it. You did all these things. You gave the missions because you got your name on a plaque somewhere. But you didn't care. You didn't really enjoy it. You didn't love it. You didn't have my heart. And for that, he says, the same way he'll send these away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. If we don't love, if we don't bear spiritual fruit, if we, don't try, to live, if we try to live holy only through the religion of Christianity if we continue to say we're Christian but reject the boundaries of what God's Spirit and His Word is doing on the inside of our hearts, Hebrews says if we we continue to just spit on the cross by so doing, we have a terrifying expectation of judgment on that day. The Bible is very clear to warn believers, to warn Christians, to run this race right, to do all you can for knowing Jesus, for loving Jesus, Uh, it's, it, it, it shouldn't be a fearful thing for us. It shouldn't be something that we're scared of God and we, we, we fear going to church and we fear pleasing Him. No, in this, and it's in the opposite way as that good steward, like the Apostle Paul, as those with the talents, it's saying, 
My God has died for me. My God has given me uh, uh, freedom over the grave, freedom over hell, freedom over sin. He's uh, given me all things that heaven has. And he's prayed for me to be one with the Father and Him. He's filled me with the Holy Spirit. He's given me a name in heaven. And I rejoice in that. So how can I not freely give Him all things like the Scripture says? How can I not? And it shows Christ that you never really appreciated His grace. You never really understood His love. You truly never did repent when you didn't go all in with Jesus. When did we understand His love for us, His grace for us, His power for us who believe? There'll be no excuse. Let me be clear. There'll be no excuse for lazy Christianity on the day of the Bema seat. No excuse for lazy Christianity. And David Wilkerson said of the American church before he died, he was a great prophet, I think, for our generation and for this, this country, perhaps God's last final prophet and warning before, uh, I believe, America's great falling away and destruction, honestly. And he said in a, in a paraphrase, he said on that day of judgment, he said, there will be no mercy for America when she gets to that place because with all of her churches... And all of her pastors, millions could have been saved by the sermons preached in America on Sunday. Yet the church sat still and unmoved. How many sermons have I heard in my life that today, if they be preached in China and around the world, millions would be saved? How many times have we been to a sermon where a pastor or a worship team pour out their whole heart and the church just sits there unmoved by the presence of God? And yet if that same sermon, that same spirit, and that same worship team would go over to another country where people are hungry, thousands will be saved. And yet we'll have no excuse on that day. There'll be no excuse for any person in America on that day with a church on every street corner, a pastor in every, every city that is declaring the Word of God. No excuse for all of us, specifically all of us who've grown up in church, who've heard the word over and over and over again, and yet we fail to give our all to Jesus. Do we understand His great love for us, what He has given to us? How can we not give it all back? And here's the, the day of testing. And turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. Paul says it this way. He says, what happens on that day at the Bema seat, it will be metaphorically like this. You'll be tested as through fire. And so let me read it. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will be becoming evident, will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. We think of the Holy Spirit as fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So the Holy Spirit is going to test your work. Okay, what you coming to Christ with on the day of the Bema seat? He says, if any man's work, which is built upon it, we're talking about being built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. If it's built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and it remains, he'll receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. So there's some, let me be clear, there are some they will approach the judgment seat and he'll say, well done, come on in, you did a great thing, you've increased my kingdom. Blessed are you, here's more of my kingdom. 
then there'll be some who'll come in and they'll have the expectation of receiving a reward, but they'll say, you never really were a Christian to begin with. You didn't really love me or my kingdom. You squandered and lived your life for yourself while still having my name applied to you. It really didn't mean anything at all. You did all those works for your own will, your own work, your own power, your own glory. If that was all for you, it wasn't for me. I don't even know you depart from me. And there'll be others that'll approach on that day and they'll have Jesus Christ in their heart. They'll love him more than the sin of this world and this world's pleasures. But they'll get there and they've done all their work by their own life, but it was by their own power. And for some things that weren't just great. And they'll get there on that day. They'll make heaven, but their reward will not be there. Their, their offering to God will not stand through the testing of the Holy Spirit. So what does this mean? There are some things that you will do as a person, as a man or a woman, that will last for eternity. There are some things that are precious, that, that are valuable in eternity, like gold and precious stones. There are some things like those things that when passed through the testing of the Holy Spirit show eternal investment, eternal value, and they can never be taken away. Like that gold, it's valuable, it's beautiful, it withstands all things. There are some things that we do like that powerful prayer life that you spent hours on your knees in your closet, that you have met with the Lord and you've spent your time laboring in prayer over your children and your children's children and your marriage. There are some things that will have eternal impact, an eternal investment that God says, man, that's valuable. I, that was a reward. You're going to be rewarded for that. But there are some things that we do when the Holy Spirit comes in It says, you really did that Christian thing on your own. For instance, let me give you an example. We just did a uh, back-to-school outreach here in LaSalle Parish. And while God was very much involved in it, and I believe God was unifying it, a lot of it was the work of us. We had a lot of physical work, right? We put the backpacks together. We did a lot of things. We promoted it. We announced it. We, it was a great program, right? But as it stands just as a program, it will not make eternity, Right? A backpack in a person's hand is great, but unless it's in the spirit of love and in the spirit of the Lord and that God had a spiritual investment in one of those people's lives, it will not make eternity. It's great that we did. I can give to the Red Cross. I can give to a lot of things. I can be charitable. I can be nice. But unless it's in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ, unless it impacts eternity in heaven, it will not withstand through the fire of the Holy Spirit. I worry in my own life, how much, Heath, have you done out of your own strength and your own ability? How much have I done for my own glory, my education, my stature, my status? How much of that is to build Heath up? Because sometimes I can be trying to do the right thing, but for the wrong reasons. And see, on that day, it may be the great, you may look like the greatest Christian in the world, but if it was all for the wrong motive, you're going to get there on that day and the Holy Spirit's going to know it. He's going to know you really sang in that choir for your own voice. You love to be in front of people. That wasn't me. That was all you. You love to be noticed as that, that parent who gives to the other kids. And you love to be the best one at the PTA. You love to love on people. But that really was all for you. That wasn't for me. And there's going to be that refining fire that comes through. And all of our efforts will be tested and proven which was in the name and the love of Jesus Christ? Which ones really gave glory to God? And let me give you the difference, and it's three things. Number one, the difference will be, did it come in love? Number one, did it come in love? Number two, did it come by the Holy Spirit? 
And number three, was it for Christ's glory? I can do a lot of things. I've told you this before. As a pastor, I have the knowledge. I've got the training. I've got the background on how to do church. I know the right songs to sing. I know the right sermon places to go. I've got the best Bible program out there on my computer. I've been to some of the best training that pastors could ever go to. Got my master's degree. All that stuff. But it is all for nothing if it's not in love by the Spirit of God and unless Christ gets every ounce of glory. It's all for nothing. It'll be burnt up. But on that day, I want to go up to God and I want to say, God... There's some things like that buried gold I dug for, I got on my knees and prayed for, I fasted for, I suffered for, I labored for, and it was all for you. I got no reputation and I got no stake in it, God. My name's not on it, but God, I prayed for my children and my children's children. God, I prayed for my marriage. God, I served on my Saturdays, not for my glory, but for your glory. God, I gave to missions more than most people even know, God, and it was not for me, and Lord, but it was for you. And God, I don't want any stake in it. I don't want any reputation for God, I don't want anybody to know, but God, here you go. This is for you. Those things make eternity. It's like digging for buried gold. Some of those valuable things are going to take some hard work, but they're going to be worth it. They're going to be worth it. You ask yourself, how's your prayer life? You ask yourself, how's your devotional life? Are we memorizing those scriptures? Are we pressing into the presence of God? How's your marriage and your family growing? Is it in Christ? Because there's going to be a great reward. It's going to be a great reward. The Bible says Jesus is coming soon and His reward is with Him. Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. His reward is with Him. You know what that makes me think? He is so ready to give you all that He has for you. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. He's going and he's creating this thing, this reward, these places, because he's like, I'm so excited to be with my church again. How many people are that excited to be with Jesus again? Right? It's, It's great expectation, like Paul said. Because I've given everything away, because I've given all things, I have no fear. Jesus the same way says, I'm coming back, and when I'm coming back, I'm bringing my reward with me. What is that reward? What is that reward? Revelation chapter 2 through 3 says Jesus gives eternal life. He gives the bread of heaven. He gives you a new name. He gives you authority over nations. He comes and gives you righteous garments on that day. He'll get, your name will be written in the book of life. He'll confess you and say, this is my, this is my friend. This is my child. This is my brother. Uh, he'll confess you before the Father. He says you'll be a pillar in God's temple and you'll sit with Him on His throne. Sometimes we kind of get this uh, idea of reward, and when I think about reward, we're thinking about heaven. And so we've got Christ, the judgment seat, we've got the measure He's measuring us by, and we've got the reward. That reward is being in heaven with God. And just like hell is a real reality and a real place of torment and eternal agony, heaven, too, is a real place of reward and blessing in the presence of God. But look with me in Revelation chapter uh, 21, verse 1. When Jesus came down to earth... He almost exclusively, outside of preaching judgment and uh, repentance and, and uh, you know, unfaithfulness, what happens with unfaithfulness, because he preached on hell uh, quite extensively, but he also preached almost exclusively on the kingdom of heaven. And when he preached on the kingdom of heaven, he said it this way, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's here among you. What did he mean? Heaven, in a sense, had come down that day. 
And he had brought some foreshadowing of God's eternity so that you and I could experience now what that will be like then. How many are glad for that? That we can come into a church today and feel a little bit of heaven, right? We know the reward is real. But what he was saying was this. Heaven, while it is a literal place, while there is a physical dimension of heaven, heaven more than anything is the realm and the reign of God's glory. Okay? Heaven is the dimension, it is the place where God rules and reigns in His presence and in His glory. That is the place where God is all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, and there is nothing else left but God. And what he was saying is that in those moments, heaven's authority, God's glory, God's dominion, His kingdom had come to earth, and now man, even in a fallen state, could experience heaven. So heaven had come down. Sometimes we get this misconception is likewise. And we think, well, when we go to heaven, we're going to die. We're going to go up there. We're going to be some little angels, little harp, naked little babies playing on a cloud, right? That's what we see on, you know, cereal commercials and stuff, right? We go up to heaven. But what happens? Look at Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. Saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. From God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is where? Among men. And he will what? Dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He'll wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, there will no longer be any mourning, crying, pain, and the first things have passed away. Where does heaven go? It comes down. More than trying to go up, it's about heaven coming down. Jesus came down to earth, brought heaven here. When the last days and that final day after the judgment, heaven is going to be remade, earth is going to be remade, and heaven is going to come down. That God will make it as it never had happened before, as if the fall had never occurred. There's going to be a day where God rules and reigns on the earth again, and this whole earth will be as if heaven. It will be the dominion of God. There'll be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more loneliness, no more depression, no more loss. There'll be no more war. It'll be only peace. And everywhere you go, even into the woods, into the highways and the byways, everywhere you'll feel the glorious, full presence of God. It will never leave you. There'll be no sleeping. There'll be no darkness. It'll only be the best, ultimate worship service, the best singing, the best glory that you've ever experienced. And the Bible is even clear to understand it this way, that while you get up there and you'll feel the full love, the full peace and the full joy of God, it will continue to increase because God is eternal. The love you experience on the first day of heaven won't be the same kind of love you experience on the millionth day. It will always increase. You'll never get enough of God. You'll be always full, but always increasing in the knowledge and the revelation of the Lord. That's how big God is. So that joy, it just keeps on increasing. That love, that peace, it just keeps on increasing. The glory of God just keeps on increasing for all eternity. You'll never get enough and understand the fullness of God's love. That's what reward awaits for you. So the gospel is really not so much about you getting up to heaven, but about heaven getting into you. It's here now. It's here now. The greatest reward for you and I is not really heaven. And heaven is not really all about you getting happy or feeling better about yourself or getting out of hell. Heaven is about you getting to God. 
God has so wanted to get to you that he sent his only son to die for you. You might no longer be condemned, but pass from judgment into life. And if you want to get to heaven today just because you don't want to go to hell, and if you want to get to heaven today because it's a great place, it's going to be awesome. It is. That's true. Hell's bad. Heaven's good. That's all true. But we don't go to heaven because we don't want to go to hell. And we don't go to heaven because we want to go to a good place. We go to heaven because we want to get to God. He is your greatest reward. See, all the things that I could ever do for Jesus, the Bible is very clear. We just cast them at his feet. Why? Because true worshipers are in heaven. And true worshipers say, the only person I really want to go to heaven for is Jesus. I'm not going to heaven for a great family reunion in the sky. And that's going to happen. I'm going to, it's going to be awesome. But I'm going to heaven to see Jesus. He's got to be number one in our life. And the only reward, the only thing that's going to motivate you, like those talents and those servants with the talents, was that I know my master is a good man, and I want to please him. I want to be with him. I don't do this to get a reputation for myself. If I was to do this, I wouldn't be in ministry. If I wanted to be a, a, you know, known or done something great. It's all for Jesus. Do you have that love for God that you love Him first in your life more than the things of this world, more than the pleasure of this world because, sir, ma'am, that boat's not going to do it. That house is not going to do it. That job's not going to do it. That new purse isn't going to do it. All the reputation, all the pleasures you could fill your life and your mind with, all those TV shows, all those sports knowledges we could have and all the Hollywood names we could know and whose baby's having who, you know, and all this kind of stuff. We can fill our lives with all the trash of the world. It's all going to be burnt up. What you do for the love of God is all that matters. How are you running your Christian life? What is it going to be on that day at the Bema seat where God says, is he going to say, come on in, well done and good and faithful servant? Or is he going to say, depart from me, worker of iniquity, you worthless, lazy slave. I've never knew you. You never had my interest in mind. You didn't love my kingdom. You had my name, but you didn't have my heart. That's fearful for them. But for those of us who say, God, I give you all that I have. Give myself away. You can use me, right? Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's pray. Let's just begin to seek the Lord. Worship team, would you come? Paul said it this way. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but here's the key but also to all who have, what, loved His appearing. You see, there is no fear in death and no fear in judgment if you love His appearing. If you're a person who Jesus is first, I'm excited on that day. I'm excited for that day. God, I long for that day. And Lord, I hope I can do more for you until that time comes. But I want to give all that I have to Jesus Christ. What's holding back? What am I holding back? What am I missing? The things, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is speaking, that, God, we're missing. God, are there elements of my life where I'm not loving as you want me to love or, or, or doing what you want me to do? God, we're going to be judged according to our heart's motives, our hands work. God, how did we give? How did we pray? How did we love? How did we bless the hungry and the, the humble and reach out to the broken? God, how did I invest my finances? God, how did I uh, live my marriage? How did I parent my kids? Did I do it for the glory of God and in the love of God? Did I do it all for Jesus? Where are you at today, sir or ma'am? Paul said it this way. He says that you should judge yourself. 
judge yourself, measure yourself to determine that quality of your life. Where's your heart's motives? It's not going to just be the works, your motives behind the works. Do you go to church for God or you go to church for you? Do you give for God or do you give for you? Do you love for God's sake or do you love that you might get something else out of it? Church, He is coming back soon. He's coming back so very soon. And I believe that God, these last two weeks, this, these sermon series were not on my heart. This was not something I'd planned to do, but God impressed upon me to talk to Sanctuary Family Worship Center for two weeks about His judgment. I don't know why. It might be that one of us may make that judgment seat sooner than the rest of us. It might be that He's coming back tomorrow, the next day. He could very well come back tonight. Where will you stand? This is in all seriousness, church. Listen to me. This is a reality. God loves you. He wants to bless you. He wants to reward you. And all forever and for eternity, He wants to give you the blessings of God. How is your heart today? Christian, I speak to you. Are you all in with Jesus? Those secret things are going to be exposed. Are we all in with Jesus? No fear. Let there be no reason to fear. That's how I want to close this prayer today. Is there any reason you would fear answering to Jesus Christ today? As believer or unbeliever, is there anything, any reason you would fear meeting your Savior face to face? Oh yes, it's going to be a holy and reverent day. But is there works that I should have done that I'm not? Are there things that I'm doing that I shouldn't? Am I all in? That I could joyfully love His appearing? Holy Spirit, I pray today that You would just minister and do Your work.